0: Thank you so much, Cheryl. I'm so thrilled to be here with you today. Now, let me introduce you. Joanne was born in South Africa and is living now in Australia. She's the internationally bestseller author of 13 books, a writing mentor and an inspirational speaker. She has a master's degree in law from Yale, was a law lecturer and volunteer legal counsel at People Opposing Women Abuse. P-O-W-A in Johannesburg, South Africa, and set up and run a legal advocacy centre to end violence against women. This is her novel. It's called Unbecoming. This is what we're talking about today. It's a hilarious yet heartbreaking and provocative homage to the unravelling that happens to women in midlife whose identities have previously been entirely defined by motherhood and marriage. It's an exploration of what happens when dutiful daughters, wives, mothers and carers lose their own identity along the way. Wow. It's um. It's a really uh, lovely, insightful and very, very personal fiction book, isn't it? Tell me where, where it came from. Well,
2: Cheryl, actually, Unbecoming is the third in a kind of trilogy of books that I've written about motherhood. So. In 2006, I wrote *Secret Mother's Business*, which was based on an evening I spent with some girlfriends, where we all had young kids, and we went away one night. We had a sleepover. We drank a lot. We ate a lot. Food is really important part of my life and part of the way I connect with my female friends. And we spoke about the difficulties of motherhood. And that book went on to hit a real nerve, particularly in Germany for some reason. It sold half a million copies there, which was really quite astonishing at the time. Wow. I had no idea that it was, it really was speaking into the truths about women's lives, which was what I was aiming for. And about six years later, I wrote a sequel to that called The Reunion, which is where some of those same women from that first night get together again. Some of them have all changed. They've moved on, but their kids are all now twins, and it's a and it's a weekend away in the country, and it's about how their relationships have changed with one another, with their children, with themselves, with their marriages. And I didn't think I was going to write a third in in this series, but it it came upon me that the empty nest and this stage of life is possibly to me so far the most interesting phase of of all. I feel so grateful and privileged to actually be past my 50 year mark. And I am so intrigued and interested in women of this age and in this empty nest phase and this midlife phase where all the ways in which we may have defined ourselves around our bodies, our sexualities, our nurturing duties, fall away. Those identities sort of just fall away. And then what is left after that? It was really an exploration of that because obviously that's what's happened to me my kids are at that age and i feel as if women change in ways that are so fascinating are to me women in midlife the most interesting people on the planet right now apart from 14 year old girls
0: <laughs> i've got to say i agree with you um in a way i um I remember when I had my 50th and I had a really big celebration back in the day where you could celebrate uh, pre-COVID. And I I had 16 people for a sit-down dinner in the park. Um, So it was a lot of people. But the caterer on the night said to me, I have never seen anyone happier about turning 50. Absolutely. Wonderful. And do you know, I felt so grounded and so at peace in my life at 50. I really felt that it was the beginning of something very exciting. And do you know, it's transpired that way. Cheryl, how wonderful to hear those words from your mouth, because why is this kept from us? Nobody
2: told me that getting to 50 would be the most astonishing time of my life. It's Mm. something we're taught to dread, menopause and midlife and this obsession that we're taught to have with the way we look as if that matters. You know, when you Mm. get to this age, you've you've lost somebody younger than you. You've lost a friend or a sister or many of them. And you know that you are so lucky to be here. And all the things that you obsessed over and worried you and kept you awake at night, they fall away. Mm -hmm. And there is something that emerges from that place. And this is what I wanted to explore in Unbecoming because all the ways in which we have spent our lives becoming these things, suddenly lose their significance. And one of the quotes that really held me through the writing of this book was by a wonderful man by the name of James Hollis, who's written a lot about this midlife place and the shadowlands of our internal worlds. And he says, what we have become is now our chief obstacle. And he says that even our successes and all the things that we pin our identities on and hold up as success are now things that we have to work to get beyond. And I've really found that in my own life. I spent so long in my life wanting to be this fantastic mother and working so hard at being an author and chasing a certain version of success. And there is something about this time of life where none of that has the same resonance as it had for me when it seemed to matter so much. And as you say, in its place, this there is a different texture of meaning that comes into your life. And it comes from your connections with people and your ability to have a perspective that you
0: never had when you were younger. And I don't know if this happened to you, but <laughs> and I don't know whether I was just because I was a judgmental person. I don't know. But when I was younger when I was at my 18th year, end of school formal, I was 18 years old. And I remember looking at the teacher's table, right, where all the teachers were sitting, and they were so much older than me. And I thought, oh, they just look so strange all dressed up. You know, when I'm that age, I won't be dressed up going out and then I remember going to a bar and I might have been 30 or something you know and I saw a group of women there who were maybe in their 50s having a great time laughing chatting and I remember looking around thinking oh I hope I'm not doing that when I'm 50 <laughs> and having this perception that it is that you can't have a life when you get there right. you know Um, and now that I'm there, it's, well, I'm sure young people think the same of us, but you know, another thing, and, and you, you'd know this as a young person, I always thought too, that when you get older, and I used to use 50 as an example until I got there, that you would know everything. You'd have all your shit worked out in terms of relationships. You would, you know, be in the job that you loved. You would be, well, that's not necessarily the case is it? you are still, having the same challenges in a way that you were when you were younger. It's just that you're dealing with them differently.
2: Yeah, I think that that is so true. In fact, there is so much more that you have to deal with as a woman of 50 than you than you, are, than you have to deal with when you're 20 or 30. The life experience that you have readies you for an ability to hold the full contradictions of life, which is the joy and the grief all mottled together. Um, You're able to hold paradox and ambiguity in a way that, you know, when you're younger, you sort of just can't get your head around. Things are quite black and white when you're younger. And what I love so much about women over 50 in their 60s and into their 70s is that I feel as if this capacity that we are supposed to have for nurturing for young children, and not all of us have children, but, you know, the capacity that we have for this, generous giving to the world morphs into this love for all things, all beings. Because, you know, 90% of the volunteer work that is done in this world around the environment, around refugees, all these issues is, is done by women over 50. Mm. These are the women who come, they volunteer, they they do things, they give of themselves. And so I just look at them and I think to myself, why do we not have a world that is, that is
0: run by women with gray hair and saggy boobs. I would love that world. And so I I think it's time, you know, I'm sick of waiting. I noticed here, and as we talked about in your biography, that you've worked with uh, women and violence. I don't know, did you see the Good Weekend on Saturday, the Good Weekend article? Uh, It was about that terrible act of um, domestic violence where that and I'm not going to say his name, that terrible man, doused petrol over his wife and three children uh, very recently and uh, set them alight and all three of them died, the three children and his wife, and then he stabbed himself. And, you know, I think it was a really, really difficult article, article to read, but a very important article to read. And I wonder how far we've come with domestic violence. Talk to me about that and the work that you've done around that.
2: Oh, sure. Domestic violence and violence against women and children. I mean, this is an issue that seems to have kind of taken me on. Mm -hmm. I don't think I chose it, but it seems to have chosen me. So I worked in this field for many years in South Africa as a legal counsellor. I set up a legal advocacy centre in South Africa. It was and is and remains, I think, one of the biggest issues internationally that we deal with. Um, it's one of the things that I think stops women from getting into positions of leadership and power. It's one of the the, the great unequal, unequalizers in our world. Uh, I also sat on a law commission to draft domestic violence legislation. So I was I was something of an expert in this field, and it was a very, very disheartening time of my life because as a lawyer, I, I was looking for a solution and I was looking for ways of fixing this problem. I really believed that I was smart enough and I would figure something out. Um, and then something happened in my family where there was a terrible act of violence against a member of my family. And it kind of broke my spirit at the time. I had a young daughter um, and it was that was the decision that led us to immigrate from South Africa and come to Australia. And when I got here, Cheryl, I swore to myself that I would never involve myself in this issue again, that I did not have the heart or the ability to withstand the the blowtorch of this experience on women. And so for many years, I I started writing and I wrote many books. And in 2008, I found myself writing a book called Things Without a Name, which was about my time as a counsellor in a women's crisis centre. And that's about a young woman who's working in a crisis center who's given up on love. And that book, I had to actually uh, convince Alan and Unwin that violence against women was a really big issue and that this was an important story, but I think it was a book that the, the world wasn't quite ready for, you know, the Me Too movement happened many, many years later, but what is incredible about that book and about what you've just mentioned about The Good Weekend, because Hannah Clark, her murder and the murder of her children, at the end of last year, lit a fire inside of me again where I thought I will not work in this in this area again. And I decided in honor of of those of that family that was murdered that I was going to get things without a, ma- a name commissioned for uh, the screen. And I said about it very, very clearly that that's what I was going to do. And a couple of months after that, it was commissioned for the screen by Bunya Productions and it's been turned into a six part TV series. Violence against women is a theme that runs through my life. If there was something that I could do to change the world, that would be the thing that I would do in Unbecoming. Obviously, because it is about a group of women who spend a night together and talk about their lives. This issue of violence against women is never far from our lives. You get a group of women together, and I found this from taking women on writing retreats. There are stories of sexual abuse, incest, um, sexual violence, domestic violence, uh, femicide. In all of our lives, we've all been affected by it. We're all sitting in it. We're living in this in this system. And for those of us who have daughters, it's one of the issues that that really holds our hearts hostage. You know, it's 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 such a terrifying reality out there. And so. For me, the stories that I write are always sort of touching on this issue and trying to find a way in which women can emerge from this uh, strong and whole. I mean, I think, for example, of how Hannah Gadsby in her show, Nanette, stood on that stage as a comedian and she redefined comedy. And how did she do that? She to- Because she told us the story of how violence affected her and she said that there is nothing... Stronger than a woman who has been broken and has rebuilt herself. To me, that statement just grabbed hold of me. It was one of the one of the things that started to rattle me again back into this issue of violence against women. But for me, all the women in unbecoming, and I think any woman who gets to midlife is somebody who life has broken, but who has rebuilt herself. And so for me, I wanted to really honor these women who rebuilt their lives after life has
3: come and shattered them. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: I found myself doing this over the weekend and I had to correct myself after I read that article. And I'm thinking, what kind of women what person does this happen to, right? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, what happened to Hannah that she allowed this to happen to herself? What happened? And then I I woke up the next morning, I thought, I've got to turn this around. It's not about what they did. It's about what's being done to them. And it's so arbitrary. Violence towards women and violence towards children is really not about them. It's about the perpetrator, isn't it?
2: Oh, look, uh, Cheryl, If we could talk about this for hours and hours. The truth is that once a woman is in a relationship like this with a narcissist, sociopath, and you don't know that the person you're getting involved with is that person until it's too late. Once you're involved with them, I think the thing that really broke my heart about Hannah's situation is that she had done everything in her power to get away from him. She did everything right, so-called right, because people will say, oh, why does she stay? Hannah had left him. She had gotten out of that relationship. But once a man like that decides that you belong to him, which has got to do with the way men see women and perceive them and have coercive control over them, there isn't a way out. And so for me, the work that I feel I'm going to do, I'm going to start working with is with young women to teach them how to recognize this kind of behavior before it's too late, So much has to Ah, change, Cheryl, before before we have a different kind of world, you know. Um, But I'm hoping that the kinds of conversations that women have together when they sit around a fire, as happens in Unbecoming, and share the stories of their lives and helps them to make different decisions. So, for example, in Unbecoming, you have got these six women who go out into the Australian wilderness overnight to celebrate a friend's 57th birthday. She's just become a widow. And they're sitting there under the stars, and a young woman. So I, I wanted to introduce a woman from a different generation, and I didn't want it to be any of their daughters. I wanted her to be a stranger. She comes upon them. And so they she acts as a kind of a, a voice from the future of these younger women. And you'll and her the texture of her narrative around her life and the way she sees her life and the way she sees the future is very different from the voices of these other six women. She has a different sense of her body. She's much braver, much more courageous than certainly than I could ever be. And I I look at these young women, I look at my daughter and I look at her friends and I look at this generation that are redefining their sexuality. They're redefining whether they want to have children, whether they want to get married, all of these things. And I am so inspired by their courage Greta Thunberg. You know, we have such a strong young generation of people—not just women—of young people who are who are really holding the the future for us. The future that we, by the way, have really stuffed up for them. And I mean, the backdrop of unbecoming is that is this is the backdrop of climate change because they're walking into the Australian wilderness, they're walking into the bush, and we have this natural world that is imperiled in which these women are cradled they're sitting cocooned overnight in this place but you have this sense of impending doom and I guess one of the questions that I am asking through Unbecoming is how do we mentor and parent our children into this uncertain future you know as a parent you're always sort of supposed to have a sense of you know, what the future is, you're supposed to have the answers, your children look to you for advice. But the truth is, we cannot give them advice because we don't know what the future holds. And so this book has got quite a lot of tension around this, this, this feeling of what we don't know yet.
0: Mm. I want you to talk to me about how it is you came to writing a little bit about, I know you grew up in South Africa, just a little bit about your journey to where you are now, your personal journey. Right. Right.
2: Cheryl, I grew up um, with an older sister who was born deaf. And so from a very young age, she, she couldn't speak. And I was her interpreter for her while she was learning to speak. I was her younger sister, but I spoke, I had language before she did. So I've always, always understood how important it is to have a voice and to be able to speak. And so I think I started writing stories as soon as I could write. I've got stories that I started writing when I was five and six and illustrated so for me, language has always been a tool of empowerment. It's, it's such an important thing to me that people have language, that people are able to use their language and their voices. So I've been writing ever since I was small. I've been writing poetry and I, I studied literature and law. But because I was in South Africa, for me, what seemed so important was to use the power of language, which you, you would have in legislation, to help people to have their rights, you know, if you can enshrine people's rights in language, then you you can define what things are. And naming things, the naming what things are, is also important. I mean, the feminist movement has named sexual violence, um, sexual harassment, date rape. Um, we we've, we've started giving things names, you know, which is why my other book is called Things Without a Name. And so I had to, at one point, decide: was I going to become a writer? Was I going to become a lawyer? And I chose law and as i say i worked in that field for many many years and it was only after we immigrated to australia
0: and And talk to me about that the immigration
2: (laughs) well immigrating from the place that you have grown up and the place that you love and from your family and from your history is another form of complete unbecoming i can tell you absolutely
0: my parents did it yes right
2: and so did my grandparents from, from Eastern Europe, you know. I mean, so many people come to this country and I was lucky because I came with the language. I came with English. There are so many people who come to this country without the language. Yeah. I wrote a book about our immigration called When Hungry Eat, which was all about arriving and having lost my complete identity when I arrived here
0: and what it felt So like. why did you make the decision to come here? Talk to me about that and roughly how old or where were you at in your life?
2: Right. Well, as I said, there was a there was a very um, there was a great act of violence that happened to a member of my family and that was the decision that made us decide as a family that we were going to take our children out of south Africa because it was an act of gender violence and it was just too close to my to my family i've been working with women in the field of violence for many many years and it just got too close to our um, you know to the to our family, and so we decided to bring our daughter and son to Australia where we did the research. It looked like a beautiful country. The weather was great. My husband said they play rugby and cricket. I said, oh, that's fantastic. Did you have a list of
0: places you'd go to or was it Australia? Yeah,
2: well, you know, I had never been to Australia and I had not really ever considered it. I had studied in America. I I did a master's degree at, at Yale. I had lots of friends in America and I wanted to go there. I cannot tell you how grateful I am that we made the decision not to go to America.
0: particularly now
2: (laughs) yes exactly so so my husband actually he was the one that said well look let's look for jobs i look for jobs in america he looked for jobs in australia he was very keen on australia and he got the best job so we came here and i've got to say it's been um it's it was the start of my writing career because when eventually after five years i I was not able to uh, change my law degree but my husband did He said to me, Well, why don't you just finish that book that you've been working on for 10 years? And so I did. I sort of knuckled down and I started writing finishing a book that I'd been working on for 10 years. And then
0: I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just your first impression, because I I traveled to the US a lot. Well, I did pre-COVID. And they are people like me. They speak English, you know, they look like me. But often I know that they are so entirely culturally different to me. Talk to me about that. Was there a culture shock from you coming from? When Australia? I went to America. No, when you came here. When I came to Australia.
2: Yeah. Absolutely, Cheryl, of course. Talk that was, what was that. so disconcerting. Yeah. I mean, I arrived in this country and it. Was you think like, it's going to be the same and it's oh, not? I can hear the language, but the intonation and what things meant. And it was such a learning curve. And you know, when we had a real turning point. Was when we took our children to Uluru. We'd been here for seven years. We wanted to make a sacred pilgrimage to ask permission to be in this place, and we went there. And it was such a turning point for me where I really connected with the land and honored the journey that had brought us here. And what's so interesting, Cheryl, is that I have ancestors that went from the UK, came to Australia. I actually have family members that are buried in a cemetery, a Jewish cemetery in Melbourne somewhere. And then they immigrated to South Africa. So there is something very interesting about that full circle coming all the way back to Australia. And so I'm now such a lover of this land and especially, you know, of the natural landscape. Uh, I swim in the ocean and I am so grateful. Every single day I get into the ocean and I just say, thank you. Thank you, for. And do you go back home? Have you
0: been home? Oh
2: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean yeah. you know when you when you 've immigrated from a country you are never you never have one home. You have homes, and um, i I go home as often as I can uh, every year at least sometimes more than once a year if I can afford it um, but it 's been very difficult for my children growing up without grandparents and with you know without cousins and aunts, so you you make a home where you are. Um, and I'm grateful that they had the security of growing up in Australia. I'm so grateful for everything that they that they've been given here. Um, but you know, I we all have a little African soul, and um, that that revives when we when we go back there. And there's something I have a very strong connection to Africa. Um, all my books have been published there. I have many, many, many friends, and it's a country I absolutely love and adore.
0: Was the writing experience different for you here?
2: Well, sure, when I was in South Africa I, I wasn't a writer. I was I was a lawyer. I was working yeah, that's with, right, yeah. I was working it with violence. So I was writing as a hobby. And I think if I'd stayed in South Africa, I probably would have stayed doing something in law. I don't know that I would have become a, a writer. Maybe I would have. I mean who who knows? These are all just hypotheticals. But being in you know, being in Australia I think gave me the opportunity to say, Okay, what do you want to do? And so I mean, this is now my thirteenth book. I'm sure it's more than enough now. I can maybe <laughs> go on to something else. <laughs> but I do also teach women how to write, and um, it's, you know, this book was—I uh, started a new literary imprint with Karen McDermott of Serenity Press called Desiris, and uh, we are looking, you know, to to publish literary fiction um, for of Australian women in this country. So I'm hoping that it's the start of you know lots of other stories that will come that will come to us that are about what it's like to you know to be in this country um i i i think it's just incredible you know to mm. be here so I'm, i feel very very grateful
0: well i think we will end on that note um it's been wonderful chatting with you joanne seriously it's uh, it's lovely and it's inspiring and the book is called unbecoming all the best with it thank you so much for chatting with me today thank you so much cheryl